1: Hey, I just wanted to include a brief heads up for our listeners on this one. There is a little bit of talk of animal cruelty. We're not going to go into details, but if that's something you're sensitive to, you may want to check out on this one. Also, as you may have guessed from the title, sometimes this episode is gross. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So Tracy, pollution is probably something you think of as a post-industrial age problem for humanity. I think a lot of folks do. Yeah, I think that's a pretty common belief. But in truth, we've kind of been finding ways to uh, trash the planet for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, perhaps not with the great efficiency we currently possess. But uh there was a really interesting study of Greenland's ice cores in late 2012 and early 2013 that led to this revelation that greenhouse gases were actually a problem as far back as 2,000 years ago. And that was thanks to metallurgy and large-scale agriculture. So... Even as far back as the year 100 BCE, ancient Romans and their livestock were producing methane emissions. Uh, so were rice fields of China at the time uh, because of a bacteria that's associated with uh, the rice crop that are methane producers. So as ancient Rome and the Han dynasty of China declined, so did evidence of these emissions, according to this Greenland study, which was interesting. Uh, but of course, it's not like human civilization declined. It continued to develop. And as agriculture and technology in its various stages also developed, the emissions of human culture did, too. And between the time of those ancient Roman livestock herds and Chinese rice fields that we just started talking about a moment ago, in the year 1600, emissions rose by almost 31 million tons per year. But today we are going to talk about sort of a different type of pollution related to methane. Methane is a factor. uh, And we're stepping forward a couple hundred years from 1600 to uh, first the precursor and then what's called the Great Manure Crisis. And sometimes you'll see it listed as the Great Manure Crisis of 1894, although I did not want to give it one particular year because it's not like it was only a problem that year. Uh, It's an
0: ongoing issue of poop.
1: Yes, it's a time when uh, methane was making things smell horrible and was a problem. But really, the manure produced by one of the most vital animals for human survival at the time and human way of life led to serious issues in urban development. Uh, and before we jump in, I want to mention that primarily we're talking about New York and London in this episode, although this was a problem for pretty much any developing city at this time. But those are the places where they seem to have the most documentation of this problem.
0: Manure had become a problem in urban areas by the 18-teens. The New York City Council passed a law in 1818 to license dirt carts, which were manure collectors, as part of a management effort. But as the city grew, so did the colossal amount of manure there. It's going to get so
1: colossal, I feel like I should tell everyone to just brace.
0: (laughs) Yeah. In
1: November of 1880, there was a New York Times report on the workings of the City Sanitations Department. And one of the ongoing nuisances that's described in great detail is a manure dump at the foot of East 92nd Street. And that article says, quote, During the cold weather, while the river is filled with ice, stable refuse collects at this point. The Board of Health has permitted this accumulation under the stipulation that the offensive materials shall be removed on or before May 1st of each year. This the owners have generally failed to do, and the Board will probably refuse to permit the usual accumulation this winter.
0: This is like an even more disgusting version of Boston's snow farms (laughs) when there's a really (laughs) snowy winter. And we just put all the snow somewhere, just go put it there, a big, big pile, big pile of it. It's going to be grosser as the year goes on.
1: Very similar, except this is way grosser.
0: Except even, Yeah. I don't know when you when you when you see pictures of the melting snow farm and you see the like all the filth that was uh, plowed all the off the roads, that's where it gets really yeah. gross. But not this gross. So by the 1890s, cities had all kinds of transportation needs. You need, had goods and materials that needed to be carried from place to place, and then people needed to get around faster than they could walk to meet these transportation needs. Horses were increasingly what people turned to. By 1900,
1: in London, there were more than 50,000 working horses, powering 11,000 cabs, several thousand buses, and various carts and delivery vehicles. But London wasn't unique in this. Most large cities had similar populations of working horses.
0: I'm just going to take a moment to say, when you and I were in New York doing our live show last year, uh huh, we came around a corner and I was like, I smell horse. And it was because, you know, there are those horse-drawn carriage Places and, and like also some mounted police, but this was, this was a stable for the horse drawn carriage people. There were maybe four or five horses, right? When we came around the corner and I was like, I smell horse. I cannot imagine the smell of horse everywhere in a place with thousands of horses. Like I, I don't, I don't know how that would have, uh, olfactory fatigue, I think. That's why we developed the ability to stop smelling things over time.
1: Right. When people speak about various different bathing standards uh, of various cultures at different points in time, I think sometimes they're neglecting to factor in the fact that there are things like horse smell
0: everywhere in the air. Right. So once horses became the public transportation option... That segment of the working equine population grew really quickly. In the 18th century colonies, the use of horses for personal transport versus pulling cargo was a luxury only for well-off people. But by the late 19th century, 120,000 passengers were taking horse-pulled transportation in New York on an average day. Eventually, tracks were laid in New York, which made omnibuses even faster, more frequent, and more affordable, which meant demand for horse-drawn conveyance surged.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it was a time of great growth. We're in the Industrial Revolution time, so everything was happening very quickly. And if you've ever spent time with horses, like Tracy just mentioned, being in New York, uh, or any large animal for that matter, you know that they produce waste, and if you're talking about an animal the size of a horse, just a large animal, they produce waste in significant amounts. So the average horse, being fed regular meals, produces 15 to 35 pounds—that's 6.8 to 15.8 kilograms—of manure each day, as well as about a quart of urine. That
0: is a small child worth of waste. Yes. Try to imagine. 50,000 horses each producing their average output of feces in the streets of your nearest city. That is between 750,000 and 1.8 million pounds or for the metrically inclined 340,000 to 816,000 kilograms of horse manure piling up every day in a city as large as New York in 1900, which had, which had a larger horse population than London reaching up to 200,000 horses at its apex That amount could easily reach between 2.5 and 4 million pounds, 1.1 to 1.8 million kilograms every day, literally every day. And all of that urine in the combined area of New York and Brooklyn toward the end of the 19th century. This added up to as much as 40,000 gallons or 151,000 cubic liters per day. So much poop and pee, so much giant amounts.
1: Well, and my thing is, like, you kind of have that moment where you read the statistic and you go, wow, that's a lot. And then you go, every day there's that amount over and over and over. Like, there's no end. It's not like you go, "Okay, we got 2.5 million pounds of manure that we got to deal with. It's like tomorrow this will be 5 million if we don't cope with this today and 7.5 million the day after that. Like, I really cannot stress how severe this problem was. And in addition to the horses, there were other animals on streets at this time, including pigs, uh, cattle, sometimes sheep were not entirely out of the ordinary. And those animals were also contributing to the manure problem. Uh, and in addition to all of that manure and urine, horses would sometimes die in the course of their work. Uh, some would fall in the busy streets, and if they were badly injured, they would be shot on the spot or sometimes simply left to die.
0: Uh, heads up for sensitive listeners, animal cruelty was also a very common reality for many of these animals. They were worked literally to death, which people who've read Black Beauty know. was cheaper to treat a lot of horses very poorly and replace them than it was to treat them well and extend their working lives. And they were often stabled in very crowded conditions, which made them susceptible to disease while efforts were made to
1: clean up the carcasses of these horses that were unfortunately dying in the street uh, th- for a number, there were as many as 15,000 deceased horses cleared from New York streets in the year 1880. Uh, that wasn't always possible though, due to the large size of these animals. So sometimes they were left to decay in the thoroughfare so that they could eventually be reduced to a point where they could be disposed of more easily. So imagine the stench in addition to this, you know, multi-million pounds of manure, the thousands of gallons of urine, as well as decomposing bodies in
0: the streets. I just want to take another moment. I know I'm interjecting a lot in this episode. Uh, I had a, a a class in college that was about Southern literature. There was a whole conversation about this hallmark of Southern literature. Was there being a dead mule that somebody had to figure out how to deal with? Uh, and got into this whole thing about like, perceptions of of life in the south and and life in an agricultural area and i'm like well we were not on purpose leaving the dead mule in the middle of a busy street
1: yeah that was a, I mean it was a very real problem now i'm thinking of both flannery o'connor and faulkner now that you
0: (laughs) mentioned that though yep so uh before we talk about how some of this problem was dealt with as well as some of the issues that we're facing cities in addition to the manure and the dead animals. We are going to have a word for one of our sponsors.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So to return to our story, you may be wondering, what happened to all of this animal waste? Ideally, people cleaned it up. In reality, that's really difficult, given the amount of manure there was to keep up with. Some of it could be used in the fertilizer trade, but the output of all of the manure from the animals quickly exceeded the demand for fertilizer Eventually, the trade turned, and instead of farmers having to pay to have the fertilizer brought to them, city stables had to pay to have the manure taken out of the city.
1: And of course, not everyone uh, paid for the services offered to take the manure, the manure away. So many opted instead to go the cheap route and dump their manure in vacant lots. Some lots grew so popular for this practice that the piles of waste were said to have risen as high as 40 to 60 feet. So that's 12 to 18 meters high. And that was in New York City.
0: So that's the manure from the stables. Manure that was not in the stables, but from the horses relieving themselves while out on their roots, which if you have ever ridden a horse, you know, just happens wherever. It would just sit untended in the streets, attracting flies and slowly drying out. And eventually, that dry manure would turn into dust to be carried around the city on the wind if the weather was dry. In rainy conditions, a muddy mire of this manure developed, making traveling the city streets extremely difficult at best and miserable at worst and gross and unhygienic. Yeah, just the ickiest. I I
1: think about all of the... uh the various fictional films and whatnot that I have watched about London or New York during this time. And I'm like, some of them have the dirt. None of them show piles of manure 40 feet high. No.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking about some historical dramas that have, you know, ladies dresses, obviously filthy at the hems. Uh, but I don't and we think
1: we think, we think mud. <laughs> we don't but
0: think slurry of horse feces.
1: Yeah, it's very, very gross. Uh And of course, a cottage industry of crossing sweepers grew out of this problem as well. So there were men that would stand on street corners waiting for pedestrians that wanted to cross. And they would charge a fee to clear the path of the people on foot so that the manure would not be in their way and they would not have to drag their clothes through it.
0: I'm just baffled by this whole thing. It's very strange to think about. This whole horse situation also caused lots of other problems in addition to the manure crisis. While additional animals to keep up with cities continuing to expand meant that there was more manure, the animals also needed adi- additional resources. You needed land for stables and land for growing the hay that they needed to eat and then land that people couldn't use because of the support crops that were going to feed the animals.
1: Yeah, an urban working horse uh, regularly could consume, according to estimates, anywhere between 1.4 and 2.4 tons of hay in a given year. And that translates to roughly five acres of land. And that's to feed one horse. And that would be the equivalent of enough to provide crops for six to eight people by these same estimates. And when horse traffic was at its historical height in New York, it required an estimated 15 million acres of land to produce the hay to feed them.
0: To make matters even worse, horse traffic was an issue. There was overcrowding on the streets, and so there were also accidents. And as an aside, this problem also existed in Julius Caesar's Rome. Horse-drawn carts were forbidden in ancient Rome from dawn to dusk as a means of controlling the traffic and pollution created by the city's horses.
1: And with traffic came traffic accidents, and many of these were quite brutal and had high mortality rates because horses can be skittish and startle. They could stampede or fatally kick humans in addition to actual wrecks happening where horse carts ran into one another. There were 200 mortalities attributed to horse-drawn vehicles in New York in 1900. And for every 10,000 vehicles pulled by horses in Chicago in 1916, there were 16.9 related deaths every year.
0: This hygiene issue of manure in the streets manifested unsurprisingly in very real illnesses. An estimated 3 billion flies a day hatched in horse manure in cities across the United States in 1900. And as flies travel throughout an urban area, everything they land on is touched by everything they have landed on before, including the manure where they hatched, all kinds of bacteria. They're the carriers of a variety of infectious diseases. And the streets of horse-inhabited cities were a perfect habitat for flies, to flourish.
1: Yeah, there are a number of illnesses and diseases that are, are linked at least in theory to this fly problem. Um, particularly diseases that affected young children that didn't have immunity built up yet. So there were so many problems and you might think somebody fixed
0: these problems. They tried. Well, well and I'm thinking <laughs> that in addition, the, the dust when in dry weather the manure mm-hmm. dust-filled air has to have caused some kind of respiratory yes. problems.
1: Absolutely. I wonder if there was uh, a
0: name for that that we have lost now. I
1: didn't. Yeah, I didn't see any in my research, but I'm sure there's some colorful moniker out yeah. there well, somewhere. When we, that's we had horrifying. diseases like
0: cheese washer's lung, probably there was <laughs> something. Uh, so in
1: 1898, there was actually a conference convened in New York. For 10 days, engineers and leaders would come together for the first international urban planning conference. And one of the main agenda points was going to be solving this manure problem.
0: The reality of this conference was disappointing because after three days of deliberating, the remaining week of the conference was canceled. The planners in attendance got tired of talking about horse manure. No one had any ideas of how to actually combat the problem. And horses were essential to keeping society going. At that point, so they were basically like, we don't know, throw up our hands, leave the facility. Let's all go
1: home. Yeah. It wasn't like they could stop using horses. Uh, consider that horses had been used by humans for both transportation and agriculture for literally thousands of years at this point. And they were pretty much the only game going as far as that that went. There were other animals that could do some of those things, but horses were really the accepted and most common way. And they were so ingrained in the day-to-day functioning of life for most people that it was unthinkable to envision a world without horses working for us. Everything would have ground to a halt. And the idea of even cutting back on the horse workforce translated immediately in most people's minds to stifling progress and industry at a time when we were really excited about unprecedented growth.
0: 26 years before this conference, the northeastern United States had actually gotten a taste of what life would be like with a reduced horse workforce after the equine influenza epidemic of 1872. Commerce was significantly affected with just not enough animals to carry goods. And when the city of Boston had a massive fire downtown, there weren't enough horses to power the city's fire trucks. No one wanted to risk those events happening again.
1: So even though civic leaders were aware of the problem and the sanitation danger, as cities experienced population growth, so urban population in the U.S. had a 30 million person spike in the 100 years from 1800 and 1900, and this was happening globally as well, they just acknowledged
0: that we couldn't figure out a way to fix it and we still need more horses. This is also a compounding problem because the standard of living was rising. So there was more need on average per person for all of the goods that the horses were hauling around.
1: So that meant that they needed more horses to haul them. Which meant more poop. just no end. And even attempting like even kind of concentrated efforts to try to really have like a surge of management to clean up the existing manure problem had to employ the work of more horses to haul it away, which produced more manure. I feel like the um, the growth motto for all cities during this time should have been like, shrug, we just need more horses. <laughs> like, they just kept putting more horses on the horse problem. Uh, One journalist predicted that London would be under 9 feet or 2.7 meters of manure by the mid-20th century. And a similar declaration in New York predicted that by the 1930s, manure would have risen to the level of third-story windows. Tracy is just wiping her face in dismay.
0: (laughs) Uh, Obviously because we're all here listening to things on the internet we didn't wind up with cities being literally buried in manure so next we're going to talk about some of the things people tried to fix this issue involving urban horses in the late Victorian era and what eventually did actually fix it but first we're going to pause for a sponsor break is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at USPS.com slash Advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Get emotional
2: with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
0: So to get back to how we finally kind of resolved this problem, sort of, a number of actions were taken to try to address all of these issues of horse overcrowding in the cities. And one of the earliest was the founding of the American Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, also known as the ASPCA. On April 10th, 1866, philanthropist Henry Berg founded the society with the primary goal of improving the lives of working horses. Berg had witnessed
1: cruelty to horses when he was a U.S. diplomat in Russia during Abraham Lincoln's presidency. Uh, and he on his way back to the U.S., he traveled through London and he observed there the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And that's really what inspired him to create a similar organization in the United States.
0: When Berg campaigned for the approval of the ASPCA charter, he stated, quote, this is a matter purely of conscience. It has no perplexing side issues. He worked diligently for the next 20 years until his death in 1888, often rescuing horses from the street himself. He was the driving force for the country's first animal rights laws. And the rapidly growing horse population made it basically impossible to eliminate the cruelty problem, though.
1: Yeah, he made it his life's work, but uh, it didn't all get solved. Uh, and then in terms of traffic issues, a lot of the traffic laws that we still have today in the United States are actually the result of these crowded city streets filled with horse-drawn vehicles. Uh, William Phelps Eno, who is also called the father of traffic safety, started noticing traffic issues when he was just a boy in New York in the 1860s. And as he and his family traveled throughout Europe, he observed how other countries handled their traffic. And each of them had problems, but some of them also had some unique solutions.
0: In one of his books titled, quote, The Story of Highway Traffic Control, published in 1939, he wrote... I don't think I ever went on the streets of New York nor of any other city or town without being astonished at the stupidity of drivers, pedestrians, and police.
1: And once he grew up uh, and was working in New York with his father in the 1890s, he wondered why no one was doing anything about the horse traffic. So he decided that he would. And in 1897, he submitted a proposal for a subway route that also had surface roads and elevated roads and bicycle lanes on top. And it was designed to ease congestion. And this plan wasn't adopted, but he really didn't give up.
0: He wrote several articles in rapid succession. They were called Reform in Our Street Traffic Most Urgently Needed, and then Suggestions for the Management of Carriages and Entertainments, and then Rules of the Road Revised. While these were initially published in a horseman's periodical titled The Rider and Driver... Eno continued to publish and spread them in various places and pamphlets until many of his ideas were actually adopted. You can thank Eno for stop signs, yield signs, pedestrian islands, which he first saw in Paris as a kid and adapted in New York, and driving on the right side of the road. And his rules really did help with congestion
1: and traffic accidents, thus reducing horse carriage-related deaths. But you may have noticed neither the ASPCA nor these road rules helped the manure crisis.
0: In the end, the manure issue was never solved so much as it was outmoded. Nobody ever figured out a way to keep up with the millions of pounds of horse manure that were dropping in cities daily. But when Henry Ford introduced the Model T in 1908, it made the the personal car relatively affordable for a lot more consumers in the United States. And so many of them did switch over time from a family horse and buggy to mechanized travel
1: And Ford's advertising made clear the cost effectiveness of making this switch. Quote, this is one of the the ad campaigns, quote, old Dobbin, the family coach horse, weighs more than a Ford car, but he has only one twentieth the strength of a Ford car, cannot go as fast nor as far, costs more to maintain and almost as much to acquire.
0: It wasn't as though the United States and other countries instantly ditched their horses and moved over to gasoline-powered automobiles, although some did herald the automobile as the solution to the the pollution problem. But slowly, over time, as more vehicles were manufactured, more people bought them, horses became progressively more and more phased out. By 1912, there were more cars on New York streets than there were horses for the first time in history.
1: Yeah, they really thought like, thank goodness someone someone has solved this methane issue.
0: <laughs> yeah, but we horses were considered.
1: It. So, yeah, but they didn't. They weren't thinking that they were. They thinking, weren't there yet. Pollution is solved, you guys. Cars fixed it.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh, but then came lead pollution. Yeah. And other vehicle emissions, <laughs> and so many other problems. I mean, yeah, but. <laughs> But As
1: horses were seen less and less on city streets, the manure crisis ended anyway. Right? Uh, so not in one fell swoop, but in this slow sort of ebb. We didn't know what was coming down the pike, but, you know, <laughs> the manure, we're not living in 40 feet of manure. That's, that. you gotta look on the bright side with this one, Tracy.
0: Uh, sure. I don't have a car anymore, it's great. Uh, I say that. I say that, but we do have a car in our household, so when I need to get somewhere in a car, I can. Yeah. Uh I I am definitely, you know, even though we have plenty of other environmental problems related to our transportation, I'm definitely glad I'm not waiting through hip-high manure to get anywhere, because that would be awful.
1: Yeah, I just, it's horrifying to think about. It's horrifying. Like, I can't, you know... <laughs> Even in the dirtiest cities today there's like I still couldn't imagine Yeah, I just can't. Right. Uh yuck is the short version. Yeah. You could have just said yuck 22,000 times and sure. called it a day. Well, and would it would have been I very mean, informative though.
0: There are definitely plenty of other uh problems like this. I had always considered that like the dirt problem in yeah, earlier uh like First European and then colonial American cities to be about like garbage and not having enclosed sewers and like there was a part of me that was like horses poop I mean, you got to clean that up but like the scale of this poop situation was not yeah. <laughs> anywhere in my consciousness until you handed this to me today.
1: No, uh, I would I was because it's so I I hope our listeners are not so grossed out that they will enjoy the opportunity to wow their friends with these little factoids. But I had, I am a friend of mine and said, how much manure do you think fell in New York on an average day in the 1890s? And it was like something like three tons or something was the number that they could come up with. And I'm like, Oh, you beautiful child. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh, yeah. You know what? I have pretty, pretty listener mail that oh, has good. nothing to do with gross things. It's
0: not about poop. Yay! Please, no, not sleep. even a little. The non-poop uh, listener I have-
1: mail. I have two pieces. The first one is from our listener, Deanne. She says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm writing to thank you for the hours of enjoyment and education you and the past hosts have given me over the years. I've been listening since 2012 and have spent countless hours in your company. I have an hour-long each-way commute and have found podcasts and audiobooks to be great friends to keep me sane. Stuff You Missed in History class has become one of my favorites, and I've actually listened through the past episodes twice. The first time picking and choosing those episodes I wanted to hear, and the second most recent time listening to all the episodes in an attempt to broaden my horizons. It worked! So, in appreciation, I have enclosed a few things. First, handmade by me earrings. I do hope you both have your ears pierced, but if you don't, I don't mind if you re-gift. The medal is sterling silver and you can leg wrestle for choice. And then she also sent a book uh, along with a an episode recommendation that I'm not going to read because we might do it and it's interesting. Uh, but I wanted to thank you, Deanne, so much. Those earrings are beautiful. Tracy and I aren't going reg- to leg wrestle. The bigger problem is that we both like both of them.
0: We do both like both of them. <laughs> like you, you sent me a picture I, and I was like, I can't pick. <laughs> You're both yeah, pretty. I, su- I
1: suggested we each get one of each, <laughs> but Tracy doesn't seem to like that plan. We'll see what happens. But thank you. Thank you so much. They're so lovely. Uh, and we'll post pictures of them on our social so other people can see them. They're absolutely so, so pretty. And the other one is a wonderful card that I got from our listeners and my pals, Ashley and Jen. They uh, came to visit the House of Works offices a while back. And I hung out with them and I just adored them both. They're the most wonderful ladies. Super fun. Really fun to talk to. And they sent me a beautiful card, like a thank you card for uh the day. And here's what makes it majestic and delightful for me. It is a card in the shape Of Oscar Wilde. Nice. And it's him. So he can stand on my desk forever and judge me. How great. He would. And I love it so much. It's just the absolute best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ashley and Jen. You guys are delightful and I adore you and I, I'm so thankful for all our listeners that write us cool stuff. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can visit us at Facebook.com slash history. We're on Twitter at History, at Pinterest.com slash history, at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and we're on Instagram at History. You can also visit our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com. Do a search for almost anything you can think of and you're going to find some pretty cool content that will inform you and educate you and at least entertain you around that content. You can also visit us at mistinhistory.com, where we have the back catalog of every episode of this show ever with all hosts through the years, as well as show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have put together, as well as some other goodies. Uh, so if you want, please come and visit us online at HowStuffWorks.com and mistinhistory.com.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed.
1: Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney
2: Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair,
1: and many, many more.